grace, mercy, and peace be to you. From God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, amen. The text for the Gloria and Excelsis that I'll be referring to today is the one found on page 154 of the hymnal that's in front of you. That particular translation comes from uh, the 1970s and 80s, and uh, the original texts go back, oh, a long way, into the 180s, 190s AD, uh, and in the uh, first First Latin renditions come after some uh, visits from to the to the east from a, a bishop named Hillary Hillary of Poitiers. That was a boy's name back a long way 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 back, and that one comes to us uh, after the Council of Nicaea, actually in in uh, in the three eighties. Otherwise, it was uh, held in Greek up until that time primarily. Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. Hmm. But you can see, if you're looking at the hymnal, that the, the biblical references there, there's only two of them listed in the hymnal, and there's a whole bunch more that I'll actually be referring to as well. But the first two are certainly upfront and important. Glory to God in the highest, and peace to his people on earth. Well, that sounds fairly familiar, not, not just from liturgy, right? But where, where does that come from? What kind of Bible study time that you get an answer. Where does that come from? When Jesus was born, right? This is Christmas time, right? And and this is the word of, of angels, right? Did it ever occur to you to think about the fact that not only do we celebrate the entire life of Christ through the course of the church with various festivals, Christmas and Lent and Easter and so forth, the various festivals we celebrate during the entirety of the church year, but we also celebrate the entire life of Christ every Sunday morning in the divine service. We start right here with Christmas. To be reminded after our confession and absolution and the entry of the Lord into our presence and to recognize him as, as God Almighty to whom we're going to bring our petitions, our requests uh, for life and strength. To then move into this song of praise, we begin with the praise of the angels over the hills of Bethlehem. To go right back to the night of his birth, and to celebrate that as the first part of our celebrating that God has not stayed far away from us. Not only does he come to us in the, in the procession of the cross and things like that that have already happened, but that's all based on, that all has a foundation in his coming from heaven to earth taking on our flesh so that he could be one with us. This is the ultimate mystery, the ultimate advantage, in fact, that God has over our enemy, Satan. He became one with us. Satan would never imagine doing that. How despicable that he would think of that to do. God, God wants his fellowship with us to be so secure and so foundational that he he becomes man, 
the sun takes on our nature and assumes it into the God. And the angels celebrate this over the fields of Bethlehem and make sure that the shepherds hear it, that it's not a, a tree that falls in the woods and, and nobody knows about it. We want the world to know that the God we confess is a God who has loved us this way, this concretely, this foundationally. He has not abandoned his people. He has not washed his hands of sinners, but that he has bound himself to them in such a way that he is able to deliver to them his holiness. We partner with angels to tell that story. We're going to do that throughout the service. We'll even say that explicitly later on with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. But the thought's already here. Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. The fact that God is glorified is part of how and why we come together. In the readings we had today, particularly in the psalm for the day today, talked about how all creation participates in the celebration of God, the, the fields and the trees and the, all the green things in the world, clapping their hands and celebrating over all of the good things that God provides from, from the roots up to the flourishing abundance of the fruitfulness of the earth. They know from whom their sustenance comes, sometimes even better than we do. So giving glory to God because of what he has given to us. We affirm God the Father in the first line again then. Lord God, heavenly King, almighty God and Father, we worship you and give you thanks. We praise you for your glory. The God of heaven and earth has created and continues to preserve us. Now, it also points out what use some of these texts were put to. They're there to teach the faith. In the similar way as the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, and others do as well, these texts grew in order to communicate the basics of scriptural teaching. What do people need to know? What do they need to carry with them out into the world? Now, how was this done? In the early stages of the church, these words were given to the celebrant, the guy up front here to say, and others were supposed to kind of listen in. As congregations got larger and as buildings got larger, you couldn't hear in the back row what the guy up here was saying anymore. And so that's when you have choirs joining in to start singing these things and accompanying them with music. But it's really only in the time of the Reformation that it becomes regular standard practice among the churches in the Wittenberg tradition to give these words for all of you to sing. That on the basis of your baptism, this is your confession. This is your song, not just one guy up front here. This is part of the, the democratization of the practice in the church as the 
celebration of baptism as the primary right of entrance into the presence of God was more and more recognized. What does that mean that we are Christians? What does it mean that as believers that we all have access to these words, to this confession? Well, basically nothing of the fact that people had opportunity to learn these things in their own language and to understand more and more what they meant. God the Father has given us marvelous magisterial blessings in life, in strength, and in his creation. Particularly that last phrase in relation to God the Father. We praise you for your glory. Now that comes across in scripture two ways. On the one hand, God in himself is glorious. And it's right and proper to confess that. God is marvelous, awe-inspiring, and beautiful. But at the same time, we have multiple passages in the New Testament, particularly at the end of John's Gospel, where the glory of the Father is the Son. What gives full manifestation, what gives full picture to all the holiness, all the character, all the attributes of God, the, the full image of everything we're supposed to know about God is communicated to us in the life, death, and resurrection of the Son, Jesus. Just as he will say to his disciples regularly, you get to know me by, you get to know the Father by getting to know me. If you want to know him, look at who I am, what I'm doing. What it means to be God is to do the things that I do in particular, in particular laying down my life for you so that with you I can pick you up out of death and present you again in the fullness of life and the fullness of light and the fullness of my love. So in the Son, the Lord God Almighty has not kept himself transcendent and hidden and mysterious, but has now come in the mystery of the incarnation to be with his people. Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. The glory of God is in the salvation of his people. He is most God. When his compassion is driving him to rescue and to save, Jesus saves. And that just doesn't mean that he doesn't lose that on his computer. He brings the full heart and mind of his father to bear when he gathers us up in his embrace and rescues us in his mercy. You take the sin of the world away, the Lamb of God. And that's where John 1.29 comes in, that, that second passage that's listed there in the mark. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is lying about his cousin Jesus. You're seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, we confess, first of all, that death was not the end of the Resurrection continues his ministry. 
that he is the one who is exercising the authority of God for us. How is God God? He's God in the way that Jesus has already demonstrated his compassion for us. That's what drives his power, his compassion. The same Jesus who reached out and crossed boundaries to touch lepers and to gather the poor into his presence and to heal and to uplift, all of these things are the continuing work of his authority and rule at the right hand of the throne of God. He doesn't suddenly put on a different hat and be a different now scary Jesus. He is the Jesus who has always called people to come and follow him and to embrace the abundance of life with him in that faith and joy and presence of God. At the right hand of the Father, he is there with both the position and with the compassion to answer our prayers in line with the will and wisdom of God, but for ultimately the benefit of his people. Have mercy on us, hearkening back to our request in the Kyrie just mentioned before. You are the Holy One. Holy One comes from Psalm 16 and is part of the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts. The one who represents God, the one who also did not see corruption in the grave, the, the only one who was not overcome by death, but in fact, the one who rises up, conquers, and is victorious over death. That's what the Holy One does. You alone are the Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord and Caesar is not. No other power and authority can rival his throne alone. You are the most high, the one that Gabriel told Mary about, the most high God. He will be called the son of the most high. <laughs> it's unfortunate in terms of the time frame here, the the work of the Holy Spirit seems to get short-sighted at this point, but in the time in which this particular canticle was developed, it was questions around what should we say about Jesus that were really running the show. At this time, the Nicene Creed, as we would confess it, really only had one line. After all the things about God the Father and God the Son, there was simply the line, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. Full stop. That whole paragraph that we now confess about the Holy Spirit wasn't developed until after this canticle was already part of the liturgy. And so it didn't get that full treatment that the last paragraph of the Nicene Creed already had. Now, so Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father all celebrate, and particularly the fact that we get to know God the Father through the rescue that he has provided in his son, Jesus Christ. They're all of a piece together. And this shares with us where that peace actually gets defined. What does it mean 
that there is peace on earth because of what God has done from heaven. It means that I am at peace with God. His forgiveness stands between me and shapes then my attitude towards you. That we as brothers and sisters in Christ, having had our sins taken away by the Lamb of God who takes those sins away, means that now we stand with Christ between us. And we are in fellowship then one with another. That we have this glorious hope. A glorious hope that speaks of the glory of the Father as well. As the church then responds in praise to the glory of God the Father and gives expression to that very same forgiveness of Jesus, then we shine our light in the world as well. This canticle starts us off gathering in themes from Christmas, gathering themes from Good Friday even, which the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, Easter and the Ascension as well. Gathering in the whole context of what Christ has done for us and even now is for us as he answers our prayers, both with his power and in his compassion. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.